welcome to the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Podcast, where building a thriving real estate investing business has less to do with subway tile and shiplap and everything to do with whether you've laid a solid foundation to support the life of your dreams. I'm your real estate lawyer turned legal educator host, Bonnie Galam. In my years building a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio, the most important lesson I've learned is that being a successful real estate investor isn't about secret strategies or ninja tactics. It's about doing the basic stuff right and staying laser focused. If you're an ambitious real estate investor or one in the making who's looking to build a real estate portfolio that's secure, streamlined, and creates a life you love, you're in the right place. Each week here on the show, you'll get clear, actionable, step-by-step strategies to help you build your real estate business and some tough love along the way to make sure you're not building a house of cards. Let's get started. Hey guys, I'm Bonnie Gallum, host of the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Podcast. Thanks for joining me this week because I am pumped. I'm going to be talking about my favorite thing in the world, my one true love, asset protection. Sorry, kids and husband. Now you guys know I'm kidding, but asset protection is definitely by far my favorite thing to chat about here. And I could definitely do it until, you know, I turned blue in the face. Uh, The funny thing is, though, you know, I was thinking about it when I was prepping for this podcast that when I started from my law firm three years ago now, I was going into it thinking I was not an asset protection attorney. I just wanted to be the real estate attorney for investors that I frankly never had for myself. And you know, one who just really got this interplay that happens between the legal stuff, the legal advice I was receiving, frankly, from my own attorneys, and the way it was playing out in my business with my tenants or my partners or my contractors, one who just really saw my business as a whole and not just as like a one-off zoning application or an LLC or a tenant issue. And over time, I kind of came to realize that I was basically acting as this like in-house general counsel for real estate investors. And I, you know, I really got this sense of clarity that asset protection that even I paid for from another attorney in the early days of our investing back, you know, even before my husband and I met when I was in law school, was that legal and, you know, LLCs and things like that was really just a piece of a much bigger legal pie, for lack of a better metaphor, on the tip of my tongue. But ultimately, that's, you know, what led me to create Landlord Law School and now something that I'm going to announce today for the first time ever, which I'm so freaking excited about. But after I started my law firm, I I really just heard from so many investors about all these, you know, preconceptions that they had before working with me and frankly, you know, misconceptions about asset protection and how to just approach the legal stuff in their investing business. And, you know, they were getting info from local RIAs or YouTube or Facebook groups and friends before they ever came to work with me. And part of the problem I saw was that sometimes the advice they were giving just didn't apply to their situation, whether it was because it was state specific or applied to like a different exit strategy or it wouldn't work because of their financing. It just, it was very unique to their situation. But more often than not, the, the big problem was arising. It was that they just couldn't see how all the pieces came together to create like a global legal strategy for their business. And after educating hundreds, if, you know, honestly now probably thousands of investors over the past few years at different events in person at my firm and now more recently online about how I think legal can be used not just to protect yourself and your portfolio, but also really to optimize it and to scale your business as well. And I've seen through these conversations, frankly, that there's a lot of really consistent misconceptions. And so that's why I'm really 
excited to share with you guys right now that I have created a brand new, totally free myth-busting workshop. I'm going to be hosting it the second week of January. And during the workshop, you're going to learn five really key things. The first is the one huge mistake that you're probably making that's holding you back from increasing your net worth, which is exhibit A, why we're doing investing in the first place, but it's also keeping you from increasing your annual bottom line. And a little hint is that I've made it to in the past. The second is the legal principles you've really got to understand and of course implement before you onboard your next tenant or your next property to your portfolio. We'll also be covering the most effective way to use legal tools to stop legal problems in the tracks, repel those problematic tenants and contractors, and plus the proven way that I've used to stand out as the investor that people just want to work with. Um, Another thing that we'll be going over is the most important tool you'll need to keep your investing from turning into a 24-7 job. Uh, And no, it's not just turning your phone off at 5 p.m. The thing that drives me nuts is everyone's like, oh, I'm going to use real estate to quit my nine to five. And then they're like, holy crap, this is a 24-7 job. Was I better off at the nine to five? And so we'll be talking about what you need to do to kind of prevent that situation from happening. And the kicker, uh, we'll be wrapping it up with the main reason that most investors fail to actually create generational wealth and how to avoid this major pitfall. It's going to be a lot of fun, guys. And at the end of the workshop, there'll be a live Q&A for you guys to answer, you know, ask me any of the questions that you have, and you'll be invited to join Landlord Law School with some insane bonuses. Guys, I don't use this term loosely, but they are going to be wild. So make sure you register. If you can't make a live, there's going to be a limited time replay. So just make sure you register in either event. You can do it at bonniegallum.com forward slash workshop or using the link right there in your podcast player. So without further ado, let's dive into this week's Q&A episode because I got a ton. You guys, you guys sent me a really more than I could handle (laughs) in this one episode. Questions on Instagram, through Facebook, in my DMs about asset protection. And I'm going to tackle the four that I think would be most interesting to you guys, but also the most applicable to you. And they are. First, what asset protection do I actually like? How to protect your paid off properties once you've got the mortgages all paid off? Third off, is an umbrella policy a good substitute for an LLC? And then finally, we'll wrap it up with, does it actually ever hurt to have a, you know, Wyoming, Nevada, special state uh, LLC? You know, I like to call them my special snowflake states. Um, At the end of this episode, make sure you visit my website where you can find the show notes, plus any of the links I'm going to mention today over at bonniegallum.com forward slash 39, or again, using the link in your podcast player. If you guys are enjoying the podcast, make sure you're subscribed so you're always the first to know when new episodes are dropped every Wednesday. So let's dive in. First question was, again, what asset protection do I actually, guys? You guys, this one had me rolling. Y'all really think I'm anti-everything just because I love to speak out against um, a lot of parts of asset protection that I that really bother me in this industry. And so Let me tell you what I am anti first. How about this? I'm anti-lawyers who have a one-size-fits-all approach to asset protection because there's nothing that is one-size-fits-all about our businesses. Um, I'm also anti-lawyers whose initial fee is more than you'd be out of pocket probably in a decade using my method of asset protection. I joke, but if you've been here a while, you'll have heard me say probably that you shouldn't need asset protection from your asset protection. I mean, I spoke to an investor a few months ago who paid over $25,000 to get this whole asset protection contraption in place for like two properties. And I'm like, that's more than one of your down payments for on these buildings. It's ridiculous. And you know, anytime he's going to, you know, refi the properties, he's got to undo it and redo it. It's just, it's ridiculous. Um, and I'm so peeved really by these lawyers who sell you on something 
ridiculously expensive and then throw their hands up in the air on like the way it plays out in real life and you know what same thing right up this alley is the same thing that where it's really misleading um anti-misleading representations about getting you bulletproof asset protection when there ain't no such thing guys you know what i used to apologize for telling investors that there's no such thing for uh as bulletproof asset protection but I, I think it's really important that you guys know that you, you shouldn't be chasing the impossible and probably spending way too much money on legal fees trying to get there. Um, and really, it, if you're only taking half that approach, you know, putting in these, you know, legal entities in place, you're, you're actually still quite exposed to, you know, lawsuits and problems. And so that being said, now that you know everything that I am anti let me answer your actual question. What type of asset protection do I like? And the answer to that is I like holistic asset protection. Something that works the way that you just expect asset protection to work. Guys, this, this shouldn't be rocket science. Asset protection is there to save you out-of-pocket money. It's there to save you time, and it's there to save you headaches. And what I like to see is a mix of what I have named offensive and defensive asset protection. The defensive asset protection is probably what you're thinking about when you hear the word asset protection. It's LLCs, maybe you're laying out the trust, insurance. Fundamentally, this is the stuff, guys, that just plays out in the defense for you. It's there to protect you once things go wrong. And it, as you heard last week with my episode with Trevor, it, it doesn't really do anything to stop a lawsuit from happening outright. But big butt, capital butt, is this is where offensive asset protection comes in. And offensive asset protection is the backbone of my program, Landlord Law School, and it's the asset protection you can expect to have from the legal stuff. What do we want our legal stuff to do for us? We want it to prevent problems from happening in the first place, guys. And offensive asset protection is made up of things like contracts and systems and processes and even generational wealth preparing because Lord knows, guys, it's not enough just to have the properties. In fact, it can be a, a recipe for disaster. And so answer your question, the asset protection I'd like to see investors have is a mix of both, both of the offensive and defensive strategies combined. And the nice thing about offensive asset protection is that you can go all out on it, all out, no matter your investing strategy, your financing strategy. And that's a big reason why I love it so much is that it is approachable and accessible for every type of investor. And then you layer on as much defensive tools that make sense for you, fit within your budget, and, you know, just match up with your risk tolerance. Um, and if you want to learn more about my approach to asset protection, then I definitely encourage you to sign up for that upcoming workshop, the myth-busting workshop I mentioned earlier in the program at bonniegallum.com forward slash workshop. Next, I got a really good question on Instagram from someone about how to protect paid off properties. And I'm really glad someone ended up asking this question because it's a it's a common situation that arises when you've owned properties for a period of time. Or if you're, you know, following a, I'll say Dave Ramsey approach to purchase properties in cash, but it doesn't mean you're following Dave Ramsey and all of his nonsense. It just means that you're buying properties with your own money. Um, and the common advice that you'll see in the asset protection world is to do something that's known as debt stripping. And debt stripping is basically where you take out mortgages or loans or home equity lines of credit, basically things to remove the equity that you have in a property. And the, the thought process behind debt stripping, guys, is that you're basically making yourself essentially judgment-proof by having nothing. And <laughs> you, you probably know where my head is going with this already, which is that that doesn't really make a lot of sense. We're, we're trying to have net worth. We're trying to have cash flow. And so it, 
it can make sense in certain circumstances. It's not all bad debt stripping. But for me, I mean, and I know a lot of investors, we're, we're trying to increase our net worth. And if we have, we'll just say for easy numbers, a million dollar property that has a million dollars worth of judgments and mortgages and HELOCs and all sorts of things on it, we're, our net worth is zero. Um, and the way that this will play out in a lawsuit, though, in theory, is we've got this million dollar property that's got a million dollars worth of loans on it. And so even if we lose, even if we are the biggest a-hole in the world, and you know someone got seriously injured and we were negligent, they don't get anything because we don't have anything. And that's essentially what debt stripping does. Now, don't get me wrong. I essentially do debt stripping. And you probably were not expecting me to say that, but this is basically a natural part of Burr investing. And uh, if you've been here for a while, you know I'm a Burr investor, which basically means we buy properties and we refinancing them and pay off either you know hard money or cash that we use to buy it. And so we have a, a mortgage on it. And every few years, we refinance our mortgages and maybe pull out some of our debt pay down. Um, but we're doing this as part of our growth strategy, not necessarily part of our asset protection strategy. And so I'm using this money to serve me better, basically. I'm making the money that I have work for myself through new investments. I'm not, I've never once considered that an asset protection strategy. In fact, I've had a lot of conversations with my husband and I about at what point do we kind of just want to chill on pulling out the cash and just kind of ride this out and say, hey, look, in, you know, 15 years when we're in our late 40s, do we just want to have all these properties paid off that are just cash flowing? insanely. <laughs> and so I I don't know what the answer to that is long term right now. I can definitely say we're pulling out less than we were pulling out in the early days. But debt stripping is is fundamentally what a lot of people would say you would do to as an asset protection strategy. Um, another thing I really want you to consider, though, is that fraudulent debt stripping can be undone. If you know lawsuits coming down the road and you're like, oh, crap, and I'm going to go, you know, take out a HELOC or I'm going to go, you know, lend myself money from one LLC to a different LLC and we're going to put liens on these properties so there's nothing actually there, that can be undone. And so don't be chasing this as like a, a last minute thing that's going to protect you as a Hail Mary. That's not what debt stripping is. However, it can be a nice benefit if it is part of your regular investing growth strategy. And if you're not looking to add debt back onto the property, say you're like, Bonnie, I heard what you had to say about debt stripping, not for me, which I totally get because some people don't want to do it for a number of reasons. I can I can think of a few off the hand. Namely, like I said, it decreases your net worth, um, at least potentially in the short term. You know, uh, You can always pay it off again, but for many people, that that's the goal. And it definitely decreases your cash flow on rental properties. And so you've got to keep an, an eye on those numbers. Is the cash flow more important to you or is having you know all this debt strapped on so you can leverage it, ideally, uh, for other properties more important? There's a give and take and there's no right or wrong answer. Another thing I think you should be doing, though, if that's your, your case, is making sure you've got enough insurance. You've really got to kind of sit down with your insurance broker and let them guide the conversation. You don't want to have the most limited insurance. You don't want to have the cheapest necessarily insurance. You want to make sure you got some good insurance on you because that's really what's going to cover you. And you got to make sure you've got enough. If you've got a million dollars worth of assets, and I'm not just talking properties, I'm talking what's in your bank account, what's in your retirement accounts, what is in your personal residence, all of this. We're talking total net worth. I want you to have it covered. And so making sure that that's the case. And it can be layered. I'm not talking about just getting only umbrella policies, and we'll go into that question next. But 
making sure that you've got adequate homeowners insurance, making sure maybe making the determination about, um, you know, replacement policies, things like that can can be more important because a lender is not going to require you to have a minimum. And so this comes down to you and your protection that you need to have for your own benefit. Another thing, though, when it comes to paid off properties is that once you get it, it can be a great checkpoint that if this property wasn't in an LLC originally, it's a lot easier to move it there now um, in a lot of cases. And so maybe that's something worth reconsidering if this is a property you always had in your personal name and you're like, well, it doesn't have a loan on it that has some sort of due on sale clause. I can just you know, date it over into my LLC. I think that's definitely something that's worth considering. So thank you again for that great question. The third question is about umbrella policies versus LLCs. And is it a good substitute? Is, it, is an umbrella policy a good substitute for an LLC? And my answer to that is that it's better than neither. Um, how's that for an answer, guys? Look, insurance is great. It's affordable. It's broad. It covers basically any exit strategy and is applicable in basically any financing situation. I, I don't think anyone should be in this business without insurance. How much of it and which types depends on what you have and what you're doing. Uh, I go into that a lot deeper in landlord law school, but insurance should not be the first thing that you you cut. I also know that, you know, LLCs are not available for everyone, particularly, you know, the FHA house hackers or people who maybe had a primary residence even under a conventional mortgage and have since moved out and now it's a rental or something. It, it LLCs are not always a good fit, even if that good fit is not just for right now. That's not to say that things can't change in five years or 10 years or even just one year. But if that's not something that you're choosing to use right now, then umbrella policies are a really good uh, option. And I'll tell you that the best option is to have both. That's what I personally have. But even, you know, for people who have LLCs, I think it's worth mentioning that umbrella policies can also protect your LLC from yourself. I think a lot of people think, oh my gosh, you know, all my real estate is a big risk to me and my personal home, my personal assets. And so I've, I'm going to put everything into an LLC to protect myself. And the assets more generally. The other thing, though, really is, is that you got to think about your personal life. You're, you're driving around, you maybe have your own job, and that could be riskier. I know a lot of people who are like doctors, and they're, you know, walking, talking liability bombs just based off of what they do in their job. And maybe that's you as well. Maybe you're, you know, you have another business that you own, um, that you're, you know, always kind of at the risk of being sued and being uh, getting a judgment against you there. And we don't want them attaching onto your LLC membership interest either. And, uh, Umbrella policy is a great way to prevent that from happening as well. The thing that an umbrella policy can never do, however, is isolate risk and isolate assets. And so is it a good substitute? No, because it's not a substitute. It's an insurance policy. But is it really valuable? Yeah, I think so. So I hope that answered your question about umbrella policies. Now, the last question we got, which I thought was really interesting, was does it ever hurt to have a Wyoming, Nevada, Special Snowflake State LLC? And I was pretty surprised by this one. And I, when I sat down to think about it when I was prepping for this episode, I, I did actually come up to think that there were, are some possible downsides. Um, the first downside, though, isn't just pertaining to these states. It pertains to really any out-of-state 
LLC, which is the expense of foreign registration. Basically, what that means is, and I'll make up some states for example, say you've got a Wyoming LLC and you're using it to do uh, and hold uh, property in Texas. And so what you would have to do is you'd pay to register the LLC in Wyoming, and then you'd also pay Texas to register it there and let them know you're doing business and around, <laughs> basically, to be sued in the state of Texas. And so that also comes with a fee. And so you're instead of paying one fee, if you just formed it in Texas, you're paying two. You're paying the fee every year in Wyoming, and then you're paying the registration for the foreign registration in Texas every year as well. Again, this is not just a special snowflake state uh, that I call like the designer brand LLCs. It really applies if you're taking any LLC into any other state than the one that it, it is domestic in, the one that created it. And the other thing, and this is particular in my mind, because I invest and I'm a licensed attorney in New Jersey, and I just kind of know this intimately through client experiences. And I can, I can speak it from it from New Jersey, and I've heard the same thing from New York attorneys. And I'm not sure how widespread it is, but I definitely think it's an unspoken insider tip, I'll say, particularly in these higher tax, higher income tax states, is that these states, uh, New Jersey, New York, like to audit frequently their out-of-state LLCs. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're in trouble, but it's a pain in the butt, guys. <laughs> it's a massive pain and headache to go through an audit. And chances are they're going to find something. Um, and that's especially true if you're DIYing your tax return. So make sure you've got a good CPA um, at baseline, but it, it can become uh, particularly important if you're foreign registering your LLCs into other states. And guys, your CPA should really be paying for themselves. But just keep that in mind. Like a lot of states, they're, they're trying to capture their tax income. Uh, and, you know, New Jersey is, you know, a I'll say two-figure income tax state. And so that can be a lot of money on the line for them. And so they like to make sure that the businesses that are doing business in their state are appropriately paying taxes for and to the coffers of the state of New Jersey. So those were all of our questions for this week. Next week, guys, I'm going to be tackling one of the riskiest legal mistakes a real estate investor can make. So stick around for next week's episode. And in the interim, don't forget to sign up for my upcoming workshop at bonniegallum.com forward slash workshop. If you enjoyed this episode, guys, I'd love it if you left me a five-star review and a comment. It really does help other real estate entrepreneurs like you find my show. And again, to access any of the links or resources mentioned in this episode, just head on over to my website at bonniegallum.com forward slash 39 or using the link right there in your podcast app. Take care. And I'll see you guys here same time, same place next week. Bye for now. If you want to continue the conversation, jump on over to the free Good Bones Real Estate Investing Facebook group. That's it for this episode of the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'll see you here next week, same time, same place. Until then, go out and build the real estate empire of your dreams. Thank you for listening to the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast player to make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes. Now this lawyer's got to drop the fine print real quick. This podcast is educational and not intended to be legal tax or investing advice for you. Please speak with a local professional for specific advice unique to you and your situation. That's it for this episode. Bye for now.